Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, good morning once again, everybody. Hey, we're going to be uh, getting back into our series. We've been going through uh, through the duration of the summer uh, in the book of Exodus. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, pull it up. Uh, either, uh, again, on another browser, maybe you've got a copy, a hard copy there with you or something like that. Hey, if you uh, don't uh, have that already, you can actually go uh, online and go to Bible.com and uh, you can pull up a copy of God's Word uh, right there. Uh, and it's got all kinds of translations. We're going to be in the NIV translation, the new, new international version, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, should be pretty easy to find, even if you're new to scripture. Uh, it's the second book uh, of the Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus. Uh, and what we've been following uh, together is really chronicling the story of God's personal presence with his people. Uh, and, and it's been such an interesting narrative for us. And I love the fact that what scripture does uh, is that it has a whole lot of different genres of literature. I mean, there's all kinds of things in there, whether it be some teaching uh, in certain segments. I mean, some kind of uh, some Psalms, which are more like songs and those type of things. Uh, there's some historical things that are going on. And that's kind of what we got in Exodus is telling us the story of God, how God interacts with his people. And what's been so interesting about that to me is the way that the, present, the, the gospel's presented, the way the story of God is pre presented, is not just like a manual. It's not just something I, that you pull out and you say, hey, put uh, this like Ikea instructions or something like that, that you're trying to follow and you're trying to follow these pictures. It's, it's kind of like the story that's in the flesh. I mean, it's your story. It's my story. And and anytime we engage with matters of faith, anytime we engage with God, it is going to bring up questions. And uh, if you're new to us, the thing that you might want to know is that we love questions uh, here at Journey. We love being able to ask questions. We like to entertain questions because we believe that the questions that you deal with and that we deal with lead us back to God. As a matter of fact, there are so many important questions as it pertains to God. And today in Exodus chapter 17, uh, verse 7, we're introduced to one of those questions. Let me show it to you right here. This is Exodus 17, 7. Uh, it's the second half of the verse. It just simply says, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this becomes the pivot point for the entire chapter. Uh, and as stories go, uh, sometimes you can dig into kind of the minutia of the story and there's a lot of value in that. And a lot of times we'll do that around here. And then sometimes you can zoom out and you can see the big picture and the beauty of the narratives like what we're looking at today where, where this question is found is simply the fact that this question comes from a real life situation. This is a question that maybe you've asked before. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you have asked that very question. Hey, is God even here? Uh, is God around? Uh, you might have even kind of asked the question, is there a God at all? And when we follow the story through the Exodus, what we're getting in real time is a group of people that are asking the, the exact types of questions and they're asking it not because God has not been around, but they're asking it because their understanding of God is growing and evolving. 
And all of us are on that journey. All of us are on that path of understanding deeper and deeper who God is. And the way we do that is through questions. And most of the time when we ask a question like this, we're gonna find out in the passage that there's some things that facilitate it. There's some things that actually make us ask deep questions. And this specific question, I think in this passage is gonna reflect uh, two instances where this question is formed. The first time that I think that you would ask this question is simply this, is when you experience uh, lack, when there's an area in your life where you're not able to really uh, see how you're gonna make ends meet, uh, how you're gonna pay all the bills, how, how you're gonna take care of all your responsibilities. Uh, a lot of times when you begin to endeavor to follow this God, maybe you've taken that step before and you said, I'm gonna follow this God, and then things got difficult and it didn't seem like there was just provision right around the corner. Uh, maybe those TV preachers, which I guess I am today because I'm online uh, with you, Maybe they told you that if you did it exactly right and you prayed the right prayer and you gave the right amount of money, then you would never experience lack, that God would provide it. But you've been following God and you've been experiencing lack and you've asked the question because of that, haven't you? Well, is God even among us? But that's not the only time that you ask that question. Sometimes some of you are not in a period of lack, but you're feeling attacked. Uh, there's a part in your life right now where it seems like there, whether it's a health issue, uh, whether or not there's somebody that's against you, uh, maybe you're, you're fighting against something that's going on in the world, some kind of sense of evil that's going on in the world, uh, you just feel continually attacked. And when you feel attacked, oftentimes you feel alone. I mean, you're under pressure, you're wondering how you're gonna fight out of this situation, and you're just feeling attacked, you're feeling alone. And when you feel lack, when you feel like you're attacked, what do you do? You feel like you've got to ask a question and you've got to ask the question, hey, is God even among us? Well, what we're gonna find out today in the entirety of chapter 17 is that the people of God, the Israelites coming out of captivity in Egypt are asking this exact question. And the reason they're asking it is because they're experiencing lack and it's followed up with an episode where they're feeling attacked. And so let's look at the story real quick, real quickly and together, and let's kind of see the overview of it. And let's follow maybe what the author, the narrative is supposed to tell us about who God is. And the hope is by the end of this, that we'll come out with some truths that will help us to form a foundation where we're able then to know who this God is. Um, who is he? What's he like? And as we follow this journey with the Israelites out of Egypt, they're gonna ask this question and God's gonna give them some very specific answers and he's gonna do it in real time. Here's the way the story starts. Exodus chapter one, if you back up in the passage, it simply says this, verse one, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, uh, I highlighted a couple things here because uh, there's two correlations uh, that we have to make. We have to make the correlation that God uh, is telling them what to do. 
and they're trying to follow God. Uh, if you've tracked along with us, you know that, that God is leading them through the desert. Uh, they've never been this way before. God has sent Moses. He's kind of like the Sherpa. Uh, he's the guide. Uh, he's the tour guide on this whole thing. He's the leader. He's the pastor. He's the shepherd, uh, all those type of things. But uh, they've never seen this. They've lived their entire lives in captivity. And as Moses is leading them along the way, they're just trying to follow this leader. And they're following him on faith. And what we know about faith is faith is difficult. Faith you can't always see. Sometimes what you see seems to contradict what you are supposed to believe. And in this particular instance, God has been commanding them to move from place to place. He's moving them around. They're not able to set up shop somewhere because they're going to a promised land. There's an ultimate home, a destination. It's like some of you, when you go on your vacation trips over the summer uh, and the kids are in the back uh, seat and they're saying, hey, are we there yet? And you're like, I mean, we just, we just asked this question and answered this question like five minutes ago, but they feel like it's been 30 minutes or they feel like it's been two hours. And so in this situation, God's commanding them, God's moving them around. They're asking this question, where are we going? They're trying to stay in the seat with God. But then they get to a spot where there's no water for them to drink. Uh, they're worn out, they're tired, new territory, they're following God, and they're experiencing lack. They don't have what they need. Now, we've already been through an episode of this. Last week, uh, one of our college directors, uh, Chris Wilson, shared with us the story of manna where God was supplying uh, for them to eat. He, he sent quail uh, for meat. He sent bread to them. And, and they began to every day take this hit. And God was feeding them. But now they're in a new spot. And with a new spot in life, a new uh, geographical location, they're experiencing a new challenge, a new lack. And this is thirst. Now, uh, when you get thirsty, like when you get thirsty, uh, it's it's kind of like when you get hungry, you get hangry, you know, you get mad, you get fatigued, you're dehydrated. Um, some of you, you've been in a spot where you've been outside working. It's so hot this summer. Like I was working out mowing the yard yesterday and my mom brought me a, a, a you know, a water and I downed that thing really quick because I'd been out mowing all day. I've been sweating. I was covered in dirt, all that kind of stuff. Imagine what it's like to be walking through the desert and you are just parched, you're just dry, you're experiencing lack. And imagine how that begins to make you think about your leader that you're following and what it would make you actually think about the God that brought you here. Now, I say that because a lot of times we get in this mindset, we look and we're like, man, God did all this other stuff. What could they possibly, why could they possibly ask a question like, hey, is God even around after all that they've seen? But think about your life for a second. Think about times where maybe God showed up for you in the past and then now you're in a new season. And whereas God provided in the past, you're in a new place, you're in a new location and it just doesn't seem like he's around. You're experiencing lack like you've never experienced before. And with the new experience of lack forms a new question and a new experience with God. And so what begins to happen? Well, you can imagine maybe what would happen in reality. I mean, there, there's no pretense to this. Watch what happens in the story as we follow along. If you go to the next slide, it says that they quarreled with Moses. So they said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord 
to the test. Now, there's a couple of things that are really important in this that help us to understand what's really going on. Uh, uh, we understand, right, that the, the Bible wasn't written in English, okay? We all know that. Uh, it was actually, this portion of the Bible was written in ancient Hebrew. And if you look into the ancient language, it gives us some clarity, really, on what some of these words mean. Uh, we, we know what it means to quarrel, to fight, right? And so there's one sense where Moses could be like, hey, you know, why are you fighting with me? you know but it actually has a little bit of a deeper meaning that sets up a deeper understanding of God uh, the actual Hebrew word for quarrel uh, if we go to that slide real quick the word for quarrel actually means to bring a formal charge it's to institute legal proceedings. It's to summon someone before a bar of justice. Uh, simply said, what's happening here is they're putting Moses on trial. The, it, they're basically accusing him of manslaughter. They're saying, you left us out here or let us out here to die. And, you know, they've got a coalition all together. They've got all kind of all their evidence and the evidence is right in front of them. The evidence is in their throat. They're, they're saying, we're experiencing lack, and as it always is, when you're experiencing lack, you've got to figure out whose fault it is. And for them, they're figuring out real quickly, in their mind, it's Moses' fault. And they were thirsty, right? And so they begin to grumble, it says in verse 3. They're bringing this charge against Moses, and they grumble against Moses. And they said that very charge. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Die of thirst. They were convinced that there was no hope because lack will do that. Uh, when, when you look at the numbers, maybe you're trying to look at your online account or maybe the medical report comes in or maybe whatever it is. And there is a feeling, there is a very human, uh, natural feeling. It's normal uh, for us to look at it and go like, man, there's no hope. I, I don't see how this is going to add up. I don't see how we're gonna get out of this. And when that happens, you begin to find somebody to grumble against. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, this happens in every arena. It happens on your job. It happens with sports teams. Uh, and just kind of let you in on a little secret, it happens in churches. Uh, you know, things are not going well. There's periods where it seems like everything's going great and God's moving. There's periods where it seems very difficult. And in those periods where it's difficult, oftentimes it seems that there, when the lack happens, grumbling starts to emerge. People start to talk about, well, whose fault is it that things are not going great? It's a little uncomfortable here. And they have named Moses as the defendant in their trial. They're saying this is Moses's fault. But remember what Moses says, the Moses cried out to the Lord, he says, what am, I, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. He said, they're, they're, they're coming at me. They're, they're ready to not just throw me in jail and lock the key, you know, uh, throw me in jail, throw away the key, lock it and throw away the key. They're, they're gonna stone me because this is justice, right? You're trying to kill all of us. It's your fault. We're taking you out. They're experiencing lack. And when they're experiencing lack, they're beginning to lash out and they're lashing out against Moses. And, but if you remember what Moses said, Moses says, though you're trying to name me as the defendant, there's something deeper going on. If you back up into verse two, if we go back just to verse, remember what Moses said? It said that they were quarreling with Moses. They were bringing a charge against Moses. But what did Moses say? Why do you put the Lord to the test? 
He says, you're not really naming me as the defendant. You're really naming God as the defendant. Uh, and isn't this true? Uh, a lot of times we can kind of see things on an earthly level, but Moses is continually pivoting. He's continually telling them, hey, this is what you see here is not all that there is. There is a spiritual dynamic to physical life. And, and, and what you're experiencing here in a period of lack, you're just looking on a horizontal level and you're blaming me. But here's the thing is we're also living on a three-dimensional level. We're actually living in this case, on a vertical level. And God is involved in this equation. So when you're coming at me, all I'm doing is doing what God has told us to do, what God has told me to do. I'm trying to be faithful to that. And you're bringing a charge against me, but well, here's what you're actually doing. You're bringing a charge against God. Now, I, I don't know who you are out there. I can't see you. I'm, there's only a few people in the room here with me, but I mean, you know yourself. Uh, is there a point in your life, a period in your life, an instance in your life, a situation in your life where you're blaming somebody else? And maybe through that, maybe what you're doing is you're actually unknowingly, unwittingly blaming God for that. Well, what does God do when he's put on trial? Well, fortunately, we get the rest of the story. And if we follow the story along, what we begin to see is that God moves into the defendant's seat. Here's what happens in verse five. The Lord answered Moses. Remember Moses' question, what am I gonna do with all these people? What am I supposed to do? He's throwing his hands up. He says, I want you to go out in front of the people and I want you to take with you some of the elders of Israel and I want you to take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and I want you to go. And I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb and I want you to strike the rock and water is going to come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, let's break this down for a second because remember we're, we're, what we've been setting up is a courtroom scene and it kind of loses a little bit in translation, but what you actually have is you have the courtroom drama. Some of y'all love those courtroom uh, movies and TV shows, uh, you know, um, some of the old ones like the Perry Mason, some of the new ones. I don't even know what the new ones are, uh, but I know there's new ones out there. And it's always kind of the same thing. There's, there's somebody that's pressing into the defendant, right? Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, an attorney that's going after the, the person on stand. And it usually builds to a climax where the person you thought was the defendant, uh, you know, was, well, maybe he was a witness or something like that. And it turns out there's a turn right at the end. And then right at the end, what you begin to find out is, oh, we thought this was not the, the culprit, but it actually is. I mean, maybe there's a, a, a witness stand confession or they kind of stick it to them or something like that. I think of a few good men where at the end, it's like the whole drama turns, uh, spoiler alert. I mean, it's a 20 year old movie, but whatever. Uh, at this point, we see what's happening. They're trying to put Moses on trial. And this is essentially what God's saying. God's saying, I'm gonna get into the defendant spot. I'm gonna put myself on trial because what they're really doing is they're trying me. Watch how it flows. He says, I want you to go in front of the people and I want you to take the elders of Israel. Now, typically in the ancient Near East, and it's still like this in many of the cultures, the way that they um, 
the way that they would do trials uh, or legal proceedings in a village or in a, uh, in a tribe or something like that, uh, they would actually bring the elders of the village or the tribe out and they would present them as the jury. Uh, so it wouldn't be like what we experience here where you're, you're judged by a, courtroom, a, a, a group of your peers. Uh, maybe you got a letter in the mail sometime and you're you know, like, hey, you got jury duty and, and you go and you sit on a jury and you're just one of uh, many people that have kind of been drawn out because you're a citizen. It's a part of your civic responsibility and your civic duty. But in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, the elders were basically the rulers and they were the ones charged with the responsibility of the major decisions that would influence the entire village or the people group. And so essentially what's happening here is God is telling them, hey, I want to go to court. I want to go to court. And so I want you to get the elders together as the jury. And I want you to take your, in your hand, your staff. And, and that's important because we've learned a lot about the staff. This is just simply a, uh, a rod or a shepherd's staff. You may think of it like that. Uh, but this is something that God has sanctified, he had consecrated, and this was supposed to be the symbol, this was supposed to be the thing that God used uh, to lead the people. And it symbolized God's presence and it symbolized God's power. But in this courtroom drama, it takes on another level of meaning. Uh, when we look at the rod or the staff in this situation, uh, basically, if you were the one that was uh, uh, in charge, if you were the magistrate uh, or something like that, you would have a rod that would speak, uh, you might think of it like a gavel, okay? You would have the rod and you would come out of the staff and it would actually be used to inflict punishment at the end, possibly, where you would flog somebody with it. Uh, but it would be the standard for the judgment. And if you were holding it, then that means that you were controlling the courtroom proceedings. Now, remember, Moses is supposed to be the uh, defend in this case. And now he's moved places. God has switched places with Moses and he's made himself the defendant and he's assembled the elders for the jury. He's asked Moses to take the staff with him uh, to, to lead the proceedings. And then he says, I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Now, when he says, I'm going to stand before you, that, that might sound like, okay, well, uh, it just means he's going before me, but it's a little bit deeper than that. Uh, essentially what it's saying is that he's going and he is standing trial. God is on trial. Why? Because they're testing God and he is going to stand trial in front of them. And he's allowing himself, think about this, the God of all creation, the God of everything, the God that's brought them out of captivity is now willingly saying, put me to the test. I'm going to stand in front of you. I'm going to come at you like the defendant because they're accusing me of something. But here's what's going to happen. I want you to take the rod that you used to inflict punishment for the crime. I want you to strike the rock. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to show who I really am. Why is that? Well, I mean, some of this maybe we're familiar with. Some of you are familiar with church or you're familiar with faith or the Bible, uh, but we miss this oftentimes that they're getting to know this God. They don't know him. And so the only thing they know about God is what he reveals about himself to us. And that's the way it is today. Uh, fortunately for us, we're blessed with the fact that God has come in the flesh through Jesus so we can actually see him. We know what he's like. He's the revelation of God. God is progressively revealing himself to the people. Why? Because they don't know him yet. And they, like you and me, are fallen people by our sin. And our, our understanding of ourselves 
our understanding of the world, our understanding from God certainly is very uh, finite to say the, say the least. And so as they're seeing God, they're seeing this creator covenant Yahweh God willingly stand on trial in front of them. And so what happens, God tells them, I want you to strike the rock and uh, let's see how the story plays out. If you go to the next verse, he strikes the rock and there were, there, these were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them named. This is from Numbers 20, 13. What happened in the courtroom scene? That he struck the rock and this was the place where he was proved holy. This is the place, if you go to Numbers uh, chapter 20, it's going to record this for us. It's looking back on this because it's a reminder verse saying, what happened that day? What happened? It's kind of like a, if you go back and you're doing research for a paper or something, you're like, what happened that day? What happened at Horeb that day? This place of Meribah, which we're going to learn about in just a second. This is the place where God was vindicated. This is the place where God was proved holy. What's holy mean? It means consecrate, set it apart. It means perfect. It means whole, that God was not lacking. In a period of lack, what God is about to show them, what God is doing and demonstrating is that though they are in a position of lack, God is a person and he is a God who does not lack. God is provider and he's about to show them that for sure. But there's something deeper going on in the courtroom proceedings that we have to understand because what's happening here with questions, when we question God, we feel like we're putting God on trial, and we are oftentimes. Um, but here's what's actually happening. You see, you can't out-chess maneuver God. What God's actually doing is God is testing you. When it seems like we're putting God on trial, what's actually happening is we're being tested. As a matter of fact, you, you just heard Numbers chapter 20, but if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what God says about that situation. He says this in verse two of Deuteronomy 8, two, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way out of the wilderness for these 40 years. And why did he do it? To humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. You see, they were putting God on trial, but here's what God was doing the whole time. God was revealing what's really there. Do you know that you have some stuff in there that you don't know that's there yet? You know how you know what's in you? When life bumps you, that kind of the simple illustration is like when life bumps you, what spills out? You know, things can be cruising along pretty good. You're doing good and man, God's good. Everybody's good. Everybody's getting along and it just takes a bump and you shift. And when you hit a bump in life and you experience lack in life, what begins to happen is something comes out that you didn't know was there something that you couldn't even acknowledge or realize when things were going well, all of a sudden, you now know that there's some things in you that need to be transformed. You see, God is at work even through our failure, even through our sin, and he's doing it to reveal what's really in there. And that is a gift. It's a gift to know what's really going on in your heart because it leads us back if properly understood and properly addressed and properly uh, uh, investigated. What it actually does is the questions will lead us to God. And that's what God is about all the time. And so in this particular place, God is testing them. He's humbling them. He's revealing things to them. And what do we find that he's revealed? Well, in the passage in verse seven, where we started, it actually has a couple of names for some places that tell us what they actually found. 
And he called the place, this very location where he struck the rock, where they were having this courtroom scene, Massah. The word Massah means quarreling. And Meribah, which means testing, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, the question that we started with has a context. And the context of the question was what was inside their hearts and their lack of understanding about God. And what came out was they were fighting, they were bringing a legal charge and they were putting God on trial. And when we experience that, we do the same. We're constantly putting God on trial. This is the fallen position of mankind, of humankind. We, we're in this position where we're always trying to say, is God to blame or not? What is God, what is God like and God is continually reinforcing who he is. And oftentimes it's in the place of our lack. Because that's where the question has, this is what we started with, right? The two questions. The first question was, you experienced lack. But that's not the only situation. Because in chapter 17, they come out of one situation and God has proved himself. And then once again, God has to prove himself again. And this is the way God's always doing it. God doesn't change. And now we're about to see them experience attack. Here's the way the story plays out. And we'll kind of go through this pretty quickly. There's so much in it, but we're going to go through it pretty quickly because I want you to see the tie-in. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. See the quick turnaround? Uh, if, if you read the story, not in the minutia, but if you see it in the, the big flow of the overall narrative, you understand that what the writer is doing here is he's telling a story with a purpose. He's tying two thoughts together. They're coming out of a period where they were quarreling, they were testing God, they doubted God, and now they're put in another situation, and we're, about, we're, we're left to ask the question, well, what are they going to do now? How are they going to respond now? The Amalekites came, and they attacked the Israelites. Now, first of all, who are the Amalekites? Well, I'm going to give you three quick verses real quick, just to tell you. You can jot them down as we go. We're going to flow them quick. This tells what happened in the situation. This Again, it's looking back because the Bible all ties together. Deuteronomy 25 recounts this event. It says in verse 17, what, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, you were parched, you were experiencing lack. They met you on your journey and they attacked all who were lagging behind and they had no fear of God. They had no fear of God. So we're introduced to the Amalekites in Exodus 17, but we're going to find out that they are going to continually come back up over and over again. And they become somewhat of a prototype um, uh, for evil itself, uh, kind of cosmic evil, satanic evil, demonic evil, all those kind of things. They're going to pop up over and over again, and we're going to see they were particularly brutal. Uh, they were actually uh, connected to the people of God. They came from the line of Esau, uh, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was the one that had the birthright for the people of God. He sold it for a, a bowl of soup and he sold it to his brother Jacob. And from Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel. And, and then Esau begins to birth uh, uh, several sons. And one of them uh, comes into, turns into the group uh, known as the Amalekites. And so it's kind of like a family squabble, uh, loosely uh, expressed. Uh, and they're coming and what are they doing? They're doing what, uh, uh, they're not fighting them head to head. They're taking the people that are the most worn out. 
the people that are the weakest. They're taking the people that are lagging behind. I mean, if you've got 2 million people, there's some people that are on behind. They're weighing to see the stragglers, the people that are frail, the kids, all those type of things. They're coming in and they're brutally attacking them. So they're not fighting the warriors. They're coming and they're picking off people and they're taking what they have. It sounds a lot uh, like uh, the way that Satan himself is described in the New Testament, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And if you have watched National Geographic ever, you know that what lions do is they prey on the weak. they're, They're waiting, they're calculating, they're trying to, they're not going into the middle and attacking the middle. They're trying to see how they can easily pick off some food. And that's what the Amalekites are doing. And they made a habit of it. As a matter of fact, Numbers tells us Uh, that the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived at the hill country came down and they attacked them and they beat them down all the way to Hormah. It goes on to say in Judges, uh, I think it's the book of Judges, I'll go on the next slide, uh, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and what did they do again? They attacked Israel and they uh, took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab for 18 years. And then finally, there's a famous story about a guy named Gideon. Uh, with the Moabites, and they had partnered, the Malachites had, uh, excuse me, the Midianites, uh, Malachites had partnered with them and other Eastern people, and they came down and they invaded the Israel country, and they camped on the land, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. So you can kind of see the situation. This is not a pretty scene. This is like, I mean, a lot of times we say, well, man, look, how, look what the world's becoming. And I, I get it. But man, our world is a brutal world. And it was a brutal world since the fall. I mean, that's why God has continually intervened to, to create a people for a blessing. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he's given us a purpose to redeem and restore the world is because this is a brutal place. And now they've come out of a period of lack. And then as soon as you turn, the next scene is they're being attacked by these brutal Amalekites. And so what do you do? Well, if you back up into the story in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, Moses turns to Joshua. It's the first time we see Joshua in Scripture. Moses turns to Joshua and he says, hey, choose some men and I want you to go out and I want you to fight the Amalekites. And then he said, here's what I'm going to do. Tomorrow, I'm going to stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, if you follow Moses' story and you were just to focus on him, you would find out that Moses is learning about God too. Uh, he's been learning for a long time. Uh, he's had to constantly be reminded himself who God is. When he first got the staff, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a whole interchange that we covered where guys just said, hey, don't forget the staff when you leave. You know, you got to take that with you because that symbolizes my power and my presence. And so he's learning. And if you think about it, he's just come out of a situation where he has struck the rock and now he's beginning to grow in his knowledge of this God. And so the next scene, they're being attacked. He says, I want you to go fight physically, go down into the valley where the fight's going to happen. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to take the staff of God with me. Now, there's a whole lot of symbolism here. God moves on mountains. Uh, If you think about Mount Calvary, Mount Sinai, continually, there's a whole lot of 
uh, imagery about mountains and it makes sense, right? Uh, if you go into uh, a lot of countries, a lot of cities, oftentimes they'll on, on the highest precipice, they'll put like a, a religious symbol because it's getting closer in their mind to God. It, it, it's a connection point. It, it's showing that there's priority uh, in the people and in the mindset and stuff like that. And so typically what happens here is you would, you would typically go to a mountaintop uh, to spend time in prayer to get close to God. We, we even use that vernacular today. We say, hey, I had a mountaintop experience. We talk about the difficulties in life as valleys in our life. But what's happening here is what what essentially Moses is doing is he's connecting the dots between the spiritual and the physical. He's connecting the mountain and the valley. Why? Because when you're being attacked, there is a very physical, real presence to that, that they're experienced. But Moses has learned something, that what you see on the physical is not all there is. There is a spiritual dynamic. And we have to be reminded today of that because we want to fight a lot of physical battles. Uh, everything's a physical battle. It seems like everything's a battle now. Everybody's divided about everything, whether it's a mask or whatever. Everybody's divided about something. Everybody wants to fight about everything. But what we have to understand is that what Moses was trying to get at is like, hey, I want you to go fight physical battles. Sure, I want you to be involved. But we know that the story is going to be played out not by our physical strength, not by our intellect, not by our prowess or our knowledge, but we've got to be tied in with God. We've got to be connected with God. And that's a lesson for us, right? In our individual lives, we're going through attacks in our life. Um, there's a lot of physical things you have to do. It's kind of like, hey, listen, if you don't have a job, you need to go out and find a job. But you can also pray and ask God to uh, give you the best job. Uh, some of you are like, hey, man, I just want God for the supply. Uh, and God's saying, well, I want you to kind of work on how you're spending your money. And so there's a responsibility and there's a prayer part to it. There's a spiritual dynamic to everything that we do. Some of us, we want to kick a habit or we want to start a new uh, routine or whatever that is. Well, there's a personal responsibility to it that's physical and there's a spiritual dynamic to it. And there's a merging of those two things. Because in the, in the beginning, God didn't create us to have two divergent sides of us, a physical and a spiritual. The two were married. They were joined as one together. We are physical beings in a physical world that are also spiritual beings in a spiritual world. And those two things are merged. And so you see it in verse nine, and here's how the story plays out. And then we'll tie the whole thing together. So Joshua, he did what Moses asked him to do. As Moses had ordered, he went and fought the Amalekites. And then Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held his hands up, the Israelites were winning. And whenever he would lower his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And so you can kind of see, it's kind of like, ah, you know, no, ah, you know, it's up and down, up and down. And, um, and, and what's happening here, Moses and two other guys are up on top of this hill and they're watching the battle. And I'm assuming the people down fighting the battle can't see or as they're a little preoccupied. I mean, if you're a fight, you're not gonna be looking up there and say, well, hey, what's Moses doing with his hands up there? You're gonna be looking in front of you. Why? Because you've got a real fight going on. But Moses is overseeing the whole thing and he is trying to engage with God. He's got his staff, he's got his hands raised. There's a whole lot of things going into that. You can see this through scripture, but this is like, if you come on a Sunday uh, when we're back in the, in the room together, uh, people will be lifting their hands and you're like, why is that? Because because this is a way for us to connect with God. It's a physical thing. It's a tangible expression of connection with God. Well, this was a supernatural moment. And here's what's happening. Moses says, I'm gonna lift my hands to God and we're gonna fight this battle spiritually and physically together. But he was starting to get tired. 
Now, have you ever tried to hold up something that's not really heavy? Like, I mean, something that you could typically hold up. Like, I mean, let's say I've got my iPad here and I say, I'm gonna hold this up. Now I could hold it up and it's not really heavy, you know? But after a while, like if I was gonna do this the whole time we were together, my arms would start to get tired. And it's not based on how heavy it is. It's about how long I have to hold it. And a lot of us, I'm gonna say this because a lot of you have been, have been carrying some things that at one time you could carry on your own. You could do it on your own. It, it wasn't so heavy. It, it was a relationship. Uh, it was a, uh, a situation, uh, it, whatever it was. It's raising kids. It's a marriage. It's whatever the thing is for you. There was a while where you're like, hey, I can, I can carry this. And you did it for a while, but your hands are dropping. It, and it's not because at one time it wasn't heavy. Uh, it was too heavy. It's because you've been holding it so long. There is a tie-in between the physical and the spiritual that when we become physically tired, it affects us spiritually. And some of you, I just want to say this, some of you have been carrying a weight for a long time that one time you could carry. You could carry it in your 20s. You could carry it in your 30s. But now you're in your 40s and it's getting heavy. Whatever that responsibility is, what God wants to say to you is God wants you to be in a position where you're not alone. You know, we all need somebody in our lives sometimes that can actually raise our hands when our hands get tired. Because if you carry anything for any length of time, you're gonna get tired. And what happened on the hill is there was two guys with, uh, with Moses and their only job was to help him hold his hands up. Because what happened with Moses' hands dictated what happened on the ground. What happened in the spiritual dictated what happened in the physical. And Moses was trying to carry the load. But what God says is you need some other people to help you out. And so what happened in the next verse, we see what God did. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat down on it. Let me just talk about rest for a second. Uh, some of us are tired and what we need is we need to sit down. It doesn't mean we stop holding it. But we need to take a different position for how we're holding it. We need to take a different posture for how we're holding it. Uh, some of you are so diligent, so focused. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And if I don't do this, then I, you know, if I'm do it this way, then I, God's not going to move or it's not going to get taken care of. And somebody's sliding a stone underneath you and say, hey, sit down. Sit down for a second. Keep on holding it up but I want you to sit down. But I don't want you just to sit down and keep holding it up. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekites, Amalekite army with the sword. So what happened simply is this is, we took the load and we divided it by three. We divided it by three. We took the same weight and we said, hey, we're gonna divide that by three. Now, I used to, uh, I used to hang uh, uh, sheetrock and, and do a lot of things like that. And I can remember, like, as the day went on, like, you know, we would hold sheetrock up on the ceiling, something like that. And I was like, okay, I can hold it. But as the day went on, I would get tired, you know? And then we would say, well, what I used to could do at 10 o'clock, I can't do at two o'clock, I need some help. And we would take two people and add two other people, I would take one person, add two people to it. And what we do is we divide the weight by three and we would all work together to hold it up. And you know, that's what the church is. The church is a group of people that says, we're not one person carries the weight. 
That means that not one pastor carries the weight, not one individual carries the weight, not one family carries the weight, but we come together and we hold this up. Why? Because we are fighting a very real battle in the world. There's a lot of pain, suffering, and evil in the world, but nobody is called to take on the evil by themselves. Some of you are so tired because you've been alone. I know what it's like to be alone. I think the more you go in leadership, the, the farther you go, the more alone you feel. The, the natural gravitational pull is the farther you go in leadership, the more responsibility you have, the smaller the around you the circle gets. What does that mean? That means you have to be intentional. You have to call Aaron and hers with you. You have to get in a position where you're willing to say, yeah, I will share the load. And then some of you, you, you've been so concentrated on staying out of the fight that you haven't helped anybody carry anything. You haven't said, hey, how can I help? How can I carry the load? I can see that there's a big weight to this. What can I do? You taking the initiative to hold up someone's arms because when you're tired yourself, it's hard to think about, isn't it? Helping somebody else. But here's the picture of the church, the body coming together as brothers and sisters of one family. And when we come together, we all partner together to hold one another up. And that is distinct and different in a world. And it tells the tale in the battle. And so what did Moses do then? Well, they, they won. And so Moses has a conversation with God. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. This is the first time we have some firsts in this passage. First time we saw Joshua. This is the first time we actually explicitly hear God say, I want you to write this down. So that's important, right? God said, this was an important situation enough that you need to write it down because you're gonna forget it. And I want you to write it down and I want you to make sure Joshua hears it. God was already thinking in the future and he knew that Joshua was gonna take the mantle from Moses and he was gonna to have to go through this time and time again and he was gonna need this written down. Uh, that's just kind of a plug for journaling. Okay, when God tells you something, write it down. And he says, I will completely blot out the name of Amal uh, Amalek, excuse me, from under heaven. Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, if you find out, uh, if you follow along with the story, you know that the, again, we've already said it, the Amalekites come up over and over again. But what's he really talking about? He's talking about the evil that's behind the Amalekites. He's talking about the thing that was fueling them, not just the physical, but the spiritual that the battle that they were fighting really wasn't against people. The battle that they were really fighting were, was what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter six, when he said, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against powers and principalities and rulers in high places. Uh, this is Paul's mo motive operation in spiritual battle. Jesus was the same thing. Jesus, obviously he came to do battle. How did he do that? By living as a different individual in peace. And as he did that, he went to the cross. And as he went to the cross, we see that God fought for us. And that's the exact same thing you see at the end of this passage. Verses 15 and 16, Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So remember what happened? They're in this place of grumbling. And now 
were called to build an altar. Moses builds an altar and he says, what's the altar's name? The Lord is my banner. If you follow the story out with people of God, anytime they had a big moment where God met with them or God moved, they would often, they would build an altar and the altar would be a place of worship. And it would be kind of like putting roots down, putting an anchor down. That's why worship is important. Uh, that's why when, when we sing, when we were able to gather together or you're in your living room, that's why you not just listening and not just kind of spectating is so important because when God moves, we respond physically. Uh, that's why I wanna encourage you when, when our worship team is up here and they're leading you, uh, when Rachel is up here and she's leading the charge for us into the presence of God, that means that all of us, we get involved. Why? Because this is a place of meeting with God. This is where God proves himself. He reinforces it. So our worship is important. On this particular day, God revealed exactly who he was. And he said, I want you to write down, the Lord is my banner. Now think about this for a second. Uh, uh, we're watching the Olympics, right? The Olympics are here. And we, we love the Olympics uh, at our house. Uh, we were trying to figure out how we could watch it. We finally figured it out. Uh, but we watched the opening ceremony and everybody's coming in and what are they holding? They're holding their banners, uh, their flag. And it's pretty cool to watch just all the different uh, nations and their, the colors of their flags and the designs of their flags. But those flags represent something for them. When, when they're going into battle, into whether it's swimming or archery, or I watched judo for the first time uh, this week, whatever it is, they, they're going and they're not just representing themselves and they're not coming alone. They're representing all of us, right? When those athletes go, that's why we're tied to it. I, I, I've never watched judo before, but I was cheering for them. Uh, the U.S. person in the, in the judo, I don't know if you call it a match or what it is. It looked like a fight to me, uh, but I don't know what you call it, but I was, I was invested, right? Why was I invested? It's because we were under the same banner. They were fighting for the same banner. But in this particular case, here's what is distinct, is that while the Olympics were fighting for the banner, right? In this particular state, the banner is fighting for us. And who is the banner? The Lord is the banner. And he answers the question of lack and he answers the question of our attacks. And he goes into this particular location and this is telling, we'll finish with this. If you look at the names that were just listed in the, in the uh, passage, they're really important, don't miss them. There was Massah, remember what it meant, it meant quarreling. There was Meribah, it meant testing. And then there was the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi is what some of you may remember um, uh, from another teaching or another Bible study or something like that. The Lord is my banner, three names. Moses named the place, the geographic location for quarreling. He named the place for testing. And then God says, I want you to name this, the Lord is my banner. And so what do we learn from that? Well, three quick truths, this is what we end with three quick truths. The first one is this, in the place named for your failure, God writes his name. God fills in his name. Isn't that the way Jesus works? Jesus stepped into our stead. It's, it's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. One of my favorite verses, it says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
God stepped into our place. God wrote his name in our spot. The thing that we did against God, when we sinned against God, our greatest failure, God says, hey, no, I'm gonna write my name in that. That's why we can have confidence, scripture says, to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can have courage to go before God. Why? Because it's not our name on the line. God wrote his name in our place. And what do you see here? They got, you got Meribah, you've got Massah, and then you've got, hey, God wrote, the Lord is my banner. He wrote his name in our place. But not just that, in the place that you fought God, you put God on trial, God fought you. Is it possible that some of you have been fighting God all along, all along and you're finding out right now that God all along has been fighting for you? That God's saying, hey, listen, I will take the stand. I, I, I will take the stand right there and I will, I will step into your place. And I want you to know that this is how I'm gonna fight for you. Some of you just need to know this right now that God is fighting for you. You feel alone, you feel attacked. You feel like you don't have enough, but God is with you. He is here for you. He is fighting for you. The story that you just read with me in Exodus is just one of a billion proofs that God is living and active in our world and in your life. And then the final thing is that the same instrument used to judge God, the rod, remember when he struck the rock, is the same instrument God uses to bring you victory. The cross of Jesus was designed to be a, a judgment, a, a cursed one at that. As a matter of fact, um, the prophets of old, Isaiah, in, in chapter 58, he actually says that he was pierced for our transgressions, talking about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. Paul would actually say it in, a, in book of, one of the letters to the Corinthians when he actually said, he said, you know, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. How does something that was designed to be an instrument of judgment become an instrument of freedom? It happens when it's in the hand of God. When God says, I will take that, he redeems the worst possible thing. The thing that was designed to bring ridicule and shame on Jesus becomes the instrument, the thing we celebrate that ushers us into the resurrection, the freedom and the new life. And so what is the answer to our lack? What's the answer in our attacks? What is the answer to the question, is God even among us? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the historical proof that Exodus was leading up to that we look back to and we say that if you've ever got a question, is God real? Is God even among us? He is Emmanuel, he is God with us. He came in the flesh and what did he do? He took the blows. He wrote his name on the line. He put it all on the line for you. And maybe you just need the encouragement right now uh, because right now you're feeling weak and you need some strength. And, and you need the encouragement of knowing God's fighting for you right now. If you've got a situation where you want us to come and partner with you in prayer, we, we want to hold our hands up to God on your behalf. And not just me alone, we want to share it with our prayer team, our staff. We, we want to be able to come around you and hold your hands up. Some of you have physical needs and we want to know that too. We want to know how we can help. We want to know how not only we can just pray for you and say, hey, brother or sister, I'm praying for you, but how can we actually help 
in a situation. As we grow as a church, that's a key thing that God wants us to do. He wants us to hold our hands up together. But here's the reality. Some of you out there, you've been fighting with God for a long time. You've been fighting against him. But here's the thing, God's been fighting for you. And he sent Jesus Christ specifically for you. Not because you're more special than anybody else, but because he loved you and he created you and he has a purpose for you. And if you would call out to him right now, he promises that he will come. That's exactly, exactly why he took the blows. He did it for you and he did it for me. And so if you would like to receive him today, I'd like to lead you in a prayer that would begin the first step on maybe a a lifelong journey for you of pursuing Christ and following him as the savior and the Lord and the master of your life. And you can get on the process, the journey of learning more things about him and what it means to unpack all the blessings and all the greatness of who he is. And at the end of this, what I'd like to do is I'd like for you to share that with us. Uh, You can actually go to journeyjonesworld.com slash prayer. And right now you can begin to share, type out prayer requests on your phone, on your computer. Um, We would love to know what God's doing in your life specifically. If you've made a decision today to to change a course, we wanna know, we wanna help, all right? And uh, we wanna hold your arms up. So let me lead you in a prayer and then I'm gonna pray over this whole thing and then we're gonna wrap this thing up and uh, hopefully we'll see you back here next week right here in the building at 9 and 1045. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you are present with us. You are a very, very present help in a time of need. And you spoke into our greatest need, not just with words, but with flesh. You came and you lived a sinless life that we could not live. You, you did what we couldn't do. When we were fighting against you, God, you fought for us. So I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends out there, some of them I haven't even met, hopefully we'll become friends in in the future, that right now are struggling with a decision of where to go with you and where to go with life. I pray right now that you bring hope and life and clarity. If God's speaking to you right now, would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for fighting for me. I wanna give my life to following you. Thank you for giving me the victory over my sin. I thank you for the cross of Jesus. I trust in the resurrection of Jesus and I wanna follow you with my life. If you prayed that prayer today, would you please go there and share that with us? at journeyjonesboro.com slash prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.